maybe that is the way to start a religion. Do something completely absurd and people will be interested. You're listening to episode 55 of the National Secular Society podcast produced by Emma Park. After a few weeks pause for the summer, I'm now back to present our usual fortnightly podcasts. Between now and Christmas, we've got a range of episodes lined up on the key secularist issues of the day. I'll be interviewing guests on topics from law reform to education and from British politics to secularism around the world. This episode, I'm starting on a lighter note with the topic of pastafarianism. As you may know, this movement was born in 2005 with an open letter from a young physics graduate, Bobby Henderson, to the Kansas School Board. The aim of the letter was to protest against the possibility, under consideration by the board, of allowing intelligent design or creationism to be taught in schools alongside the theory of evolution. Henderson purported to believe, among other things, that the world was created by a flying spaghetti monster and that the decrease in the global pirate population since the 1800s was a direct cause of global warming. He argued that if the Christian theory of intelligent design should be taught in schools, equal time should be given to flying spaghetti monsterism, otherwise known as pastafarianism. In 2005, the internet was relatively young. Facebook had only been invented the previous year, but the World Wide Web was developed enough for Henderson's letter to go viral, giving rise to a movement that has continued to grow and evolve in perhaps unexpected ways. In 2006, Henderson published The Gospel of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, setting out the supposed beliefs of pastafarianism and eight I'd really rather you didn't, modeled on the Ten Commandments. Today, some even claim that pastafarianism is the world's fastest growing religion. It has certainly annoyed the authorities in some places. In Greece in 2012, a 27-year-old man was given a suspended jail sentence for running a Facebook page, Elder Pastitsios, a pastafarian parody of Elder Paisios, a holy monk. In Russia last year, Mikhail Yosilovich, the leader of the church of the FSM in Nizhny Novgorod, was arrested on charges of association with an undesirable political organization. But is pastafarianism really a religion? If not, what distinguishes a flying spaghetti monster from any other supernatural being, or wearing a colander from donning any other garb in the name of one's beliefs? For secularists, perhaps the most important point is that pastafarianism has been invoked several times with mixed success to challenge the right of religious organisations to special privileges and exemptions, as well as to have their doctrines taught in school on a par with scientific theories. Indeed, it might be argued that pastafarianism poses a fundamental challenge to the state's attempts to define religion in a coherent way, or in a way that justifies its special treatment in the law of many democracies. To explore these questions, I will be speaking in turn to three guests with different perspectives on pastafarianism and the meaning of religion. My first guest is Dirk Feynman, an assistant professor of legal philosophy at the Open University in the Netherlands and a former secondary school German teacher. Dirk featured in the documentary I, Pastafari, which came out last year, as the legal representative of Pastafarians fighting for their right to wear a colander on their head in their driving license photo. Dirk Venema, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. First of all, you featured in the documentary I, Pastafari. How did you become involved in representing three Pastafarians in the Dutch courts? Uh, well, I actually represented uh, two of them. Uh, the other was represented by someone else. Um, but, um, uh, well, the first who, who went to court was um, the founder of the Dutch Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, Dirk-Jan Dijkstra. Uh, but this was before I had even heard of this uh, religion in 2014, uh, that was, I think. But in 2016, I was teaching uh, an introductory course to the philosophy of law, uh, to law students, and um, uh, human rights was an important uh, angle in this um, 
course, and I was looking for examples on the internet, questions philosophically interesting concerning the freedom of religion. And then I discovered that in, uh, in a nearby university, there was a, um, a student who was challenging the rejection of his driver's license application because of the spaghetti strainer he was wearing in the photograph. And he, uh, he said he was a pastafarian, a member of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, but um, apparently the, the city didn't accept that as a valid reason for wearing that spaghetti strainer on his head. And he was challenging this decision, this rejection, and he would appear on a, uh, before a commission that, that would handle his, his case. Um, and um, <laughs> the, the Dutch uh, Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster had uh, decided that this, that this would be a pastafarian uh, mass. And normally these sittings are not uh, public, but the, the city um, decided um, apparently that they would accommodate the pastafarians and make it public. Uh, I explained all this to the students because I thought it was a, a fun and uh, a fun example, and it would appeal to them to discuss the, the the problem of what what is actually a religion and when do the the freedom of religion rights and privileges apply to you? In other words, when do you actually have a a real religion? So <laughs> I saw on Facebook that the Dutch pastafarians had proclaimed it as a pastafarian ma mass and one of the students suggested it would be a nice field trip <laughs> and uh, well of all the couple of hundred students only a couple uh, went uh, with me to this uh, to this commission hearing <laughs> but this was one of the most hilarious things i have ever witnessed um because this student who explained his case and said that he really was a uh, a, a believer, a pastafarian, who needed to wear the colander on his head um, for religious reasons. He was, uh, well, in our view, he was playing his role excellently, <laughs> and the, the commission really had a, a, a tough time not laughing and keeping a straight face, uh, and, and so did we, and the, in the improvised public gallery, we bit our tongues and tried not to laugh. And then afterwards, we met with the, with the applicant, uh, which is uh, Matei, the, the guy I represented, and which was also recorded in the, uh, in the documentary. And, and we discovered that, well, although he thought it was a fun experience too, he was also very serious about the underlying questions. The questions about um, when does a, how, when and how do um, administrative bodies get to decide what is a religion and, and what is not, and, and who gets uh, to enjoy religious privileges and who doesn't. And, and then his legal representative at that time was Dirk Jan Dijkstra, who was also the founder of the Dutch Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. And then they asked me to represent this student, Matei, for the next step when we took the case to court, because obviously we we all knew that the commission would deny the application uh, again. So, so then they asked me to, to represent him, and then uh, one of the students, who is uh, Minke de Wilde, who uh, she later also joined the, the Dutch uh, Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster and uh, also applied for a driver's license, license with, a, with a colander photo <laughs> and also uh, uh, got, a, got 
her application rejected. So, and then I, together with her, we developed most of the arguments uh, in her case. So uh, I handled that case uh, as well. And then these two cases were heard separately. Yes, they were separate. Yeah, yeah. So Mika was originally one of your students then? Exactly, yes. And she was inspired to wear the colander as a result of, of the field trip. Yeah, yes, she, she was, she was, yes. <laughs> so so in Amika's and uh, Mate's cases, what legal points did the two cases ultimately turn on and, and what was, was the basis for the judge's decisions? I mean, did they both reject um, their right to wear the colander in their driving licence photo? Yes, yes. In both cases, uh, the right was rejected. Um, uh, Mika's case was the only case that we uh, took all the way to the highest um, uh, administrative court in the Netherlands. Uh, where we lost, and now it is uh, the case is um, <laughs> riping, as we say, in uh, Strasbourg, uh, where uh, at the European Court of Human Rights. So the legal point is that in the Netherlands, if you apply for a for an official photo ID, a driver's license, or an ID card or a passport, um, you need a photo uh, without any headwear, except um, if headwear is necessary for medical or religious reasons um, and so if you have a uh, if you want to wear a, a headscarf for example and you say i'm a muslim it's no problem uh, you can wear it as long as your face is visible enough the same goes for other religions for for uh, sikhs for example or for jews who wear religious headwear but if you you say you are a pastafarian well they look a bit strange and i think hmm they are trying to put me on. <laughs> and uh, of course, civil servants do not like to be put on. And so they tend to reject these, um, these applications. We even discovered that there, is, uh, there was a lot of communication uh, by city administrations with the, um, the Ministry for the Interior, where uh, they were advised to deny all these applications by people who wear spaghetti strainers on their on their heads so uh, what it turns around is the question uh, is it a religious reason to wear uh, do you have a bona fide religious reason to wear a colander on your head and for that there is there is no well in most western countries there's no uh, such thing as an exhaustive list of recognized religions or anything and um and neither do we have legal definitions of religion but the european court of human rights does have some sort of a definition uh, and that is what courts uh, use in in europe and well it's not an actual definition it's rather a, sort of a set of parameters uh, and it it's it reads as follows literally it's the right to freedom of thought conscience and religion denotes views that attain a certain level of cogency seriousness cohesion and importance this was uh, used in, in several cases uh, by the European Court of Human Rights. And what it, what it ultimately turns on is the seriousness criterion, which is uh, obvious, probably, <laughs> because, uh, because of the, the, the many uh, parody and, and satire elements in, well, in, in Pastafarianism. So Dutch administration of, of officials and, and judges, they have consistently... And not accepted the seriousness of the believers in question. So they say, well, you're okay, uh, cogent, it's, it's cogent enough, it's, um, uh, there is enough cohesion in, in the, the belief uh, and the, the, the gospel of the flying spaghetti monster, 
But oh, and it, there's enough importance, and importance is actually an easy criterion because uh, that only means um, how important it is to the believer himself. Right. So purely subjective, then. Yeah. So that's subjective, and that's that's an easy hurdle uh, to take. But the seriousness um, that that's that's the problem because they say, well, there is uh, an element of uh, of parody, uh, and it's it's so pervasive. This this parody element that uh, there is not enough seriousness left so we cannot call this a uh, religion in the legal sense of the european court of human rights so uh, you don't have religious reasons for your um, colander so we cannot accept this uh, this photograph and so currently um pastafarianism in general in the netherlands is just doesn't have any recognized legal status uh, it does and it doesn't, uh, be- <laughs> because this uh, the the same uh, uh, Dirk Jan who um, founded the Dutch uh, uh, Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, he um, got the church recognized um, uh, at the uh, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, which is a, a separate um, a procedure. Uh, it's it's just to 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 register. Uh, an organization such as an, an association or a foundation um, you have to register uh, with the Chamber of Commerce and the church is is a, is a, um, a separate form of organization does that have to satisfy any religious criteria mm, hardly hardly uh, it, it, it's it's a very it, it's much easier uh, procedure so so it is recognized as as specifically a church. Yes, yes, uh, it's a church as as a specific uh, form of organization, uh, and not as a not, not recognized in the sense of that it is a a real or official uh, religion. So, so those are two separate things, and we tried to use this um, fact that the Chamber of Commerce did accept the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster as a church organization uh, in the in the procedure before the before the administrative court but they did not accept it they said no that's another uh, administrative body and we are not bound to its decisions so um uh, tough luck <laughs> uh, so apart from id cards and this sort of administrative um recognition of, of the um fastfarianism as a church in, in the netherlands or um under what circumstances might the courts in in the netherlands or in any western democracy need to consider or, or have they considered what counts as a bona fide religion uh well in theory um there, there would be numerous um occasions theoretically uh, as many as there are laws awarding special rights or privileges, exemptions, facilities uh, to religious persons as opposed to non-religious persons. Um, um, So if you want to um, get any of those facilities or privileges uh, with your small, unknown, new or strange religion, uh, you might end up in court. Um, And uh, an example is that in the Netherlands, uh, members of the Santo Daima Church, which is a church originating in South America. It's a hodgepodge of um, indigenous and cultural and uh, in Catholic uh, elements. And they have been prosecuted in the Netherlands for trafficking class A drugs, namely um, DMT, which is um, uh, used in the ayahuasca tea, um, which, is, uh, which they take in their mass uh, and then they vomit violently and then hallucinate and uh, 
experience um, contact with the Virgin Mary or something. Um, so this this um, class A drugs, dimethyltryptamine (DMT), they were arrested for for having it, and then they said, no, 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 this is our freedom of religion. We cannot express uh, our religion when we do not uh, take these uh, these drugs. And the court actually decided in a couple of cases that, okay, freedom of religion, uh, in this case, trumps the the health legislation. Um, and, and, um, so, and the court in these cases was quickly convinced, actually, that Santo Daima was a real religion. Uh, they just um, heard a, an anthropologist who explained the origin of this church uh, in South America around a century ago. And, and so, so, so they said, okay, well, that's, that sounds like a, like a true story. Um, it is a religion. And okay, go and drink your tea, and vomit and hallucinate. You, you've mentioned of the definition that the ECHR or the rough definition is given of religion. Um, so the, the case that you've got, um, Mika's case, that's currently awaiting sort of consideration, is that the first case on pastafarianism or will it be? Yes, yes. Before the European Court of Human Rights, it's, it's the first. Uh, um, although um, um, Nico Alm has also filed a, a case uh, which um, has been... Um, accepted um but now it 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 has yet to be um handled and and we don't know when uh, when that will be and i if i remember remember correctly the german pastafarians also filed a case which was uh, rejected do you have any sense for how how you think the court might um judge your case mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> that's 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 very difficult uh, some of my colleagues have uh, have told me that uh, that we don't stand a chance, but I'm not so sure because, well, the reason the the courts in the Netherlands have rejected um, our case is because they say that the, the the parody or the satire element is too great. Uh, it's 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 all parody. But I hope that the European Court of Human Rights um, does recognize that uh, the, the the parody is in the form of getting the message across the way the method we try uh, not we because I'm not a member of the uh, church but they try to to uh, get their uh, message across and 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 inform people of their uh, religion you can call that a parody but the message itself is really serious it's it's a message of uh, well it's it's an ethics of Equality of anti-authoritarianism, um, non-violence, tolerance, modesty, uh, secularist government, and of course humor. And they they have put this in the uh, in the eight. I'd rather you didn't, which are uh, like like commandments, but uh, less strong. Not commandments. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so and and this is also of course um, uh, parody. Uh, but on the other hand. Um, so, so they, they they use parody and they use the internet and they use all these 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 fun ways to um, uh, to to get um, uh, their message across to to inform people. Uh, it's it's just a different method. I mean, Saint Paul wrote letters to the Romans, uh, but Pastafarians go to court with colanders on their heads because it it, it appeals to the public uh, more in this in this time. I think. It is an, a, a sort of religion or spoof religion of the internet, isn't it? Really? Mm, yes. Also, yes, yes, it is. And and well, ab about the the, the parody uh, uh, thing, I don't think it really sets pastafarianism uh, so much apart from from other religions because if you consider uh, Mormonism, for example, uh, Mormon 
faith has such a uh, hilarious origin. But it's hard to believe that anyone would take it seriously. The Book of Mormon almost sounds like a, a parodic version of of the Old Testament. Yeah, it is. Right. It is. It, it's it's hilarious. It's, it says that that Jesus uh, appeared in in uh, in the United States uh, before it was the United States, and there was a whole community there which then disappeared, and then he got um, Joseph Smith. He received golden uh, plates uh, with old Egyptian writing on it, and uh, then he got a magic stone which which helped him translate it, etc., etc. It, it's hilarious, um, but um, maybe that is the way to start a religion: do something completely absurd, and people will be interested. And maybe in the first century AD, uh, Jews thought that that Christianity was a bad joke and and, and a parody uh, of the real religion. So, so it's it's uh, what when is something a parody? It, it, it's it's a question of. Uh, probably um, um, how old the religion is, if, if it is seen as a parody or as something more serious. Well, well, this idea of seriousness, and, and because of you say, you know, the pastor parents have this serious message, but I suppose one thing they don't presumably believe seriously is the fact that, that there is the idea that there is a flying spaghetti monster. Um, do, does the seriousness of, of a religion have to relate to um, I don't know, belief in a supernatural being or, or belief in um, anything specific? Well, there has never been agreement uh, amongst uh, scientists or theologians or uh, religious people um, on a definition of religion. Um, so if there has to be something transcendent, yes or no. Uh, well, is, is Buddhism a religion? Um, yes, according to almost everyone. But does Buddhism really have gods and 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 transcendence? I, I don't know. But um, so 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 that that's an open question whether whether there is any criterion uh, to to call something a religion uh, or not. And if you and that that was one of the funny things in in the uh, the case of of Matei. Um, at some point in court, the the judge asked me. Hmm. Well, I see. I read this in in, in this um, gospel uh, that uh, something about um, cable TV, but uh, presumably this, this should have been. This was written um, a couple of thousand years ago. So how do you see that? And so I asked the judge, "Are, are you seriously asking me um, to comment on the historic correctness uh, of 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 the of of religious texts?" Um, so and then he said, "No, no, 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 no," and went on to the, the next point. Um, so, um, do you believe in a in, in a flying spaghetti monster? What does that mean? It can mean a lot of things. It can mean, for example, that it's to to call your supreme being uh, by such an absurd name may mean that um, it is it is absurd to want to describe um, the supreme being. For example, it doesn't have to mean uh, uh, that you actually believe that there is uh, uh, an invisible being um, made of um, pasta, pasta and meatballs. And, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, so it's it often comes up. Uh, they say, "Oh, this is ridiculous because of uh, you don't really believe that there is a flying spaghetti monster, do you?" Um, uh, well, that depends on uh, how you inter interpret it, uh, which which also uh, goes for. There are very few Christians who take the Bible from A to Z completely literally. Um, so, and, and, and if you start admitting that you don't have to take it literally 
uh, uh, all the texts of your religion, then, um, well, then the, you don't have any criterion anymore to say, well, um, well, if you don't take it literally, then you're not a serious believer. It's, it's a matter of interpretation and, and experience. Yeah. So, I mean, in, indeed, where do you draw the line? I mean, um, the court thought that um, the, the belief in a flying spaghetti monster is not serious, but does that mean the court is entitled to say what sort of thing might be the object of a serious belief? Is it okay to have a serious belief that God the, created the world in six days, for example? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Is, is, is that historically uh, uh, correct? And, and, and if not, uh, is it then an, an, a non, uh, non-bona fide uh, belief? Yeah. Do you, do you think, therefore, that um, pastafarianism as, as a movement challenges this idea that religious adherents or organizations deserve special privileges and tax breaks simply because they're religious? Yes, yes, absolutely, it does. Um, not uh, explicitly. <laughs> so so uh, pastafarians would, um, I think, not so much um, say that they are uh, against religious rights because they say they have a religion and so they want these uh, religious rights, uh, of course. Um, so, but um, the so pastafarianism as a as a phenomenon, uh, yes, yes, it does uh, challenge this uh, this idea uh, because it 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 helps um, to show how how ridiculous it is to award special privileges to people or or to organizations. Just because they are religious, um, there are many organizations uh, built around ideals or um, or opinions, and and they they do not have um, these privileges or facilities that that are awarded to organizations that can uh, successfully tick the religious box. Is the conclusion to all this then that? Um if we were able in in a secular society ideally to to safeguard human rights without reference to religion i mean this would have the the added advantage um that then the state um the law courts or the administrative bodies and so forth would would simply not be required to look into the seriousness or otherwise of, of religious belief. exactly exactly I, so so um if you uh, do away with all these um special privileges rights and facilities for religious organizations or people then um government bodies wouldn't have to decide uh, who gets to enjoy these privileges and who doesn't? And uh, beca- because some religions are uh, are real and others are, are not, which is of course a very strange thing to have to decide for uh, for admin- for the administration. Because there is uh, freedom of religion, which should mean uh, that any religion should have all the freedoms of any other religion. And now that is not the case. Um, Precisely because of this uh, unease uh, people feel with these, uh, with their, for example, pastafarianism, they think it's 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 a practical joke, and they don't want to they don't want to be made a fool of. And uh, adherents of traditional religions, they are uh, they are frightened because they 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 think they are make being made fun of, and uh, pretty soon everyone will. We'll see that any religion is uh, just just an opinion uh, backed by uh, an age-old organization. And just um, one final question then. Um, have you yourself ever considered becoming a pastafarian? 
No, no, I've never considered joining any groups or organizations that are founded on a, on a specific idea because I don't want, want to be uh, um, associated with, it, with any specific idea or ideology. As, as a philosopher, I, I want to be uh, free to think and express uh, anything uh, I want, um, which I... Uh, could still do as a pastafarian <laughs> which is one of the uh, uh, paradoxes in in the pastafarian uh, uh, faith dirk fenema thank you very much thank you my second guest is tanya watkins the self-appointed captain of the australian church of the flying spaghetti monster Tanya is a student of religion and law at Deakin University and a carer. She'll be talking to me about her unsuccessful attempts to win legal recognition for her church in Australia. Captain Tanya Watkins, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Pastafarianism started in 2005 with a letter by Bobby Henderson, a recent physics graduate to the Kansas Board of Education to protest effectively against the fact that intelligent design was being taught on a level with um, evolution in schools. But how has pastafarianism evolved since then from a simple um, idea of of protest into a worldwide movement? Well, I think that um, Bobby's led really, the whole concept behind it really attracted people's interest because they had this certain idea that religious privilege was not a good thing and trying to teach evolution alongside um, creationism in a science classroom is just not a good thing because you're presenting something that is a belief as being a fact. So that that was the beginning. Um, so a, a protest specifically against creationism. But what about, I mean, since then, there have been many, many other developments to pastafarianism, the idea of pirates, climate change, the idea of wearing a colander on your head. Because so many people were interested in what Bobby was saying. He got a book deal. And so he wrote the Gospel of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. And that kind of brought out more, I guess, um, details on, you know, how people should live their lives while at the same time questioning faith and all of these other things that are going on in the world. And it just really struck more and more chords with people around the world and people thought, yeah, hold on, he's onto something here. And so from there, it grew online. There's only one physical church, I think, in the world, and that's in Germany. And the rest of us, we're just entirely online community. although we do do things out in the real world. Um, and it just, yeah, it just snowballed. As more people learned about it, um, it became a thing that got its own law. And, you know, um, we have different sects. We have the, the pirate sect where people dress up as pirates. And then we have the colander sect where people put colanders on their heads. Um, and then we have a whole group of people who don't dress up at all. What do you have? What um, criteria do you have to fulfil in order to be a pastafarian? Just want to be one. That's it. Just, just to declare that you are one. Exactly. Yes. What does pastafarianism mean to you personally? Well, to me personally, it's a whole life philosophy. Because if you look at what it's saying, it's saying just be nice to other people. You know, you're not better than anybody else. We're all equal. We're all the same. Just, just be nice to everyone. 
How popular is pastafarianism down under? That's very difficult to gauge because we have a lot of people who aren't necessarily joining in with the online communities, but they do identify themselves as um, as pastafarians and, you know, they go out and do things and then I hear about them. So I know those people are out there. Um, online, we have a community of about 6,500. And according to the last census, there's possibly up to 100,000 of us. How did you become captain of the Flying Spaghetti Monster Church? And what do you actually have to do as captain? I saw a whole load of pastafarians out there in the world who didn't have one solid place to go to. So I just basically created, um, it started on Facebook. I just started um, Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster Australia, declared myself official, and people followed Right. <laughs> so it's um, yeah, all, self, all self-declaration then. Well, we all are. All religion is self-declaration. Sure. Um, and what, what do you now do as captain? Well, I try to get us recognition. Um, I also run the community, so I look after people. If people need help, I give them help. Um, I try to stop people from arguing. I try to inform them about human rights equality and about why they should be nice to other people. How long have you been a Pastafarian for? Since, I think, 2012. So just maybe a year after that then, since 2013 onwards, you've made several applications, all of which have been unsuccessful so far. Yes, three applications, yes. Three applications. Good, to have the um, Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster in Australia legally incorporated. Yeah, just as an association. Right. What would be the purpose of incorporation? Well, when you're incorporated, you become, well, you don't become, the the incorporation becomes a legal person. So it's able to have a bank account. It's able to own assets. It's able to enter into contracts. All of those sorts of things that, you know, your basic church can do. Would it be in keeping with the original spirit of pastafarianism as being quite sort of anarchic to to start getting all the same sort of um, structures as a religion, an an organised religion? Not really, because one of the things in the gospel, it says where you see that a religion is getting some kind of special treatment, uh, you should also drive to get that. And um, what would you hope to do with, um, if you had your own bank account, you could um, purchase your own assets, what would be the aim? Uh, the, The aim would be, we could raise money and we could do a lot more Feed the Hungry events. Um, ultimately, we would love to build a homeless shelter, uh, mainly for people from the Rainbow Pride community because they're very um, let down by the religious um, homeless shelters. Do um, organised religions, recognised religions at least, have privileges under Australian law? There is no such thing <laughs> as a recognised religion in Australia. There are just exemptions from things. So you get tax exemptions, property tax and all that sort of stuff. You don't have to pay any of that. Whereas if you're a secular organisation, you'd have to. So you would be hoping um, that the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster could benefit from those same tax exemptions? Um, I was not ever going to apply for tax exemptions because I believe all religious organisations should. They should be paying tax. So it's, it's sort of in a way the opposite that you... you, you don't want either you or any religious organisations to get tax exemptions. Exactly, yes. 
Okay, well, let's look at your most recent application. Now, this was rejected. Um, one, one of your arguments was that it was formed for a religious purpose, or if not, it was formed for an educational charitable purpose. Now, the senior member of, of this tribunal, Miss um, Kathleen McEvoy, refused your application. So let's focus on your leading contention that the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster was formed for a religious purpose. So what were your main arguments um, in support of the contention that pastafarianism is a religion? It has all of the same elements of or, you know any other religion has. We have a whole set of people who believe in this. We have a certain subset of people who believe in the flying spaghetti monster itself. You know, not everybody does, but some people actually do. And we have rules of behavior um, that, you know, we're supposed to follow. Not everybody does, of course, but nobody does in their religions either. And there's no difference, really. So you're saying that um, believing um, in a, a flying spaghetti monster um, made of pasta and meatballs um, and wearing pirate costume or colanders and following certain suggestions for being nice to other people is no different from the practices and beliefs of any other religion? Well, in a, in a sense, because some people don't believe in the, in the spaghetti and meatball version of the flying spaghetti monster. They believe in the concept of there's something that's out there and it touches everything in the entire universe at the same time, which, you know, could be string theory. You know, it's part of everything. But it's not necessary to, to, to do any specific thing in order to be um, a, a pastafarian as such. No, no, just be alive. Now, your opponent, the commission represented by uh, Mr. Ambrose, argued that pastafarianism is a hoax or a sham or a parody religion. Um, and that some of its texts, in addition, would be insulting or offensive to genuinely religious people. And um, the judge seems to have basically accepted these arguments. For you, where is the mistake in this approach? Because they don't understand the satire. Um, you know, I did make the argument that a, mod a modest proposal by Jonathan Swift was not an instruction manual. It was basically a satire against the idea of poor starving irish people eating their own children it was an attack against the attitudes of the day and the policies of the day and that's what the gospel is and so the gospel of, of pastafarianism what exactly um if it's satire what is exactly are its real or sort of its most important fundamental purposes to make people think about faith and why do we have faith which faith we choose, why do we choose that particular one, which rules are we supposed to follow, which are we supposed to ignore, what do these you know, weird, weird parables mean? Is, is it also to criticise some of the, the, worst excess, the worst practices of um, formerly established religions? Yeah, to an extent, but to do it with human, because if you get people laughing, they're not as offended as if you just go at them angrily about something. We have a 30-day policy where basically try us for 30 days. If you don't like us, your old religion will probably take you back. And that's kind of a way of saying that some people can't leave their religions because, you know, various reasons, you know, either they'll be in danger, they'll lose all their friends, their family. That's not going to happen in pastafarianism. What positive benefits would you say you provide to people? 
comfort because people do need comfort. They need a community. They need a community of like-minded people and they need to be able to, um, you know, feel like they belong to something they, so they don't feel like they're outcasts, which a lot of people who leave their religions, they do feel that because they no longer have their families, they no longer have their friends, they have to find their way out in the world, you know, because they doubted their own faith. And so we just offer them a safe landing spot. What do you do with your fellow pastafarians in person? In person, uh, we have our Feed the Hungry events where we just basically, you know, open up and we offer pastor meals to anybody who comes along. We don't care what faith they are, whether they're part of the Rainbow Pride community, whether they, you know, what colour their skin is, um, whether they agree with us or not, we don't care. They can just all come and have a feed. Uh, we also do social events, um, obviously not so much since COVID has occurred. Is part of your point that all religious dogmas um, are based on faith without any scientific evidence and that they're no more convincing ultimately than saying that, um, you know, global warming um, is inversely correlated to the number of pirates in the world. Yeah, well, there's, there is no science in faith. You know, faith is faith. If faith was able to be scientifically proven, we'd know which one was the correct religion by now. But for some reason, people seem to have a desire in them to have a belief in something. And since they do, there's probably a reason for that. The judge was sort of forced to effectively define religion and say that pastafarianism doesn't count as religion. Is it, is, should it be the role of the secular court to say what a religion is and isn't? It absolutely shouldn't be. The whole thing is that the law should be applied the same to everybody. You know, there shouldn't be a thing where you can get registered for being religious. It should just be whether you have an association, everything you're doing is legal, and that should be the only criteria that there is. Where do you think pastafarianism um, is going in Australia? Do you think it's going to get bigger or smaller over the next 10, 20 years? Any ideas? I think it's going to get huge, to be quite honest. Uh, the numbers that we're growing at, it's pretty exponential. So we're going to just get bigger and bigger and bigger until the point where they can't ignore us. What, what do you think the aims of pastafarianism as a movement should be around the world um, in, say, in the next couple of decades? To question religious privilege and also to, to promote the fact we should just always be nice to each other. Don't, don't religions promote that idea? Yeah, some do. You know, some don't, and that's the problem. Might there come a time in the future when pastafarianism was no longer necessary? I hope so. Doesn't mean I hope it goes away. What would society have to be like for pastafarianism not to be necessary anymore? For everybody to be treated exactly equally. Captain Tanya Watkins, thank you very much. Thank you very much. My third guest is Dr. Tony Meacham, a lecturer at Coventry University, whose research interests include comparative constitutional law and the different ways in which different states treat religion. He was previously a civil servant in Australia, working in the areas of social security and higher education. He will be providing an objective academic perspective on the place of religion in law. Tony Meacham, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, I appreciate you having me on board. 
First of all, what motivated you to write your article for the conversation about pastafarianism? Basically, I came across an article in the newspaper highlighting that there was a documentary called I Pastafari and that it was screening in the United States. So I'd heard of the Pastafarians, um, you know, in the general sense, as most people have, and I was intrigued about it. Since I'm interested in constitutional law and specifically uh, secularism and the state's relationship to religion, I thought, well, it's worth having a look at uh, what the documentary was all about and what they were saying, what was the focus of the documentary and so on. So there were a number of points in that documentary I found particularly interesting. And what were they? Well, for example, um, they were showing how pastafarianism was being treated around the world. That's, you know, different states like New Zealand, the United States, uh, uh, countries in Europe, and where they were, the pastafarians were saying, look, if we're a recognized religion, then we should be getting benefits, tax breaks, other things that uh, organized religion normally gets. So, for example, a simple thing like if you have a religious headdress, then there are exemptions uh, when you're getting a driver's license for people who are uh, of a recognized religion to have a religious headdress. So they argued, well, we have one too, we should get that exemption. And if we can't, why not? So they're trying to draw out what are the parameters um, for that exemption and more broadly, uh, how are you defining a religion through that definition of a headdress. Other points they were making was things like simply saying, look, if you're saying we're not a religion, prove we are not. Give us the the parameters by which you define religion or define what is a religion. So I thought, you know, intellectually, that's an interesting argument. How do you do so? Because in centuries past, it's fairly easy to do so. Most countries, the, you've only had one dominant religion. And when you said religion, what you were talking about was that religion. In the United States, for example, in the early years, you were talking about uh, Christianity and in particular Protestantism. So the two were interchangeable terms. In more modern times, however, it's been interesting to see the state try to determine things that require a definition of religion by having a definition that is all-encompassing, that um, covers every particular perspective. So, so has the um, the the idea of, of the need to define religion really been forced upon states over the over the centuries, over the years, by the the emergence of new religions? Well, it's not so much a force, I guess. Um, religion has um, always had a place in most communities, and with that, has had a protected status. So, for example, if you look at the Charities Act in the United Kingdom. It's always been accepted that uh, religion has a charitable purpose, that, you know, they educate uh, people, they uh, feed them, they do good things. So in the centuries past, when you had in the Charities Act that the Charities Act will allow a charity to be registered if it's for the purposes of advancement of religion, then the term religion was understood and you didn't have to work hard from there. You just simply said, well, 
we're the local branch of the dominant religion. We obviously have a charitable purpose. Um, so our charity for education or whatever has now been submitted to you. And so there should be no uh, difficulty in recognizing our application. But in recent years, defining religion has been more problematical. How, how is um, religion currently defined in English law? Well, it depends. Most definitions of anything um, are usually only defined in legislation for the purposes of that legislation. So for the purposes of just one piece of legislation, you may have a definition that doesn't match with others. So, I mean, in English law, we've got, say, the, the Charities Act, which defines, you know, religion or has religion for the purposes of, of charitable purposes would include the advancement of religion. Then we've got the Equality Act 2010, um, making religion or belief a protected characteristic. And then we've got the Human Rights Act as well. Um, so do these all three have different definitions of religion or have different definitions been developed within them? Well, they do. I know I'm sounding like a lawyer here, but it depends. Uh, if you take the Charities Act. It says um, religion includes a religion which be involves belief in more than one God and a religion which does not involve belief in a God, which isn't terribly clear. It still assumes you understand what religion is. So much of the discussion on uh, the Charities Act leaves the definition to the courts, which uh, doesn't help because if you really haven't got any sort of parameters for the courts, then the courts really aren't free to just make this stuff out of whole cloth. If you're looking at employment tribunals, they've looked at beliefs in spiritualism, psychic powers, anti-fox hunting beliefs, the virtues of public service broadcasting, humanism. But at the same time, they said um, Marxist or Trotskyite beliefs, conspiracy theories, and that property should be worn for Remembrance Day are not religious viewpoints you know for example you go to, if you have a religious viewpoint that says there should not be war like uh, the quakers tend to have but you've got a philosophical viewpoint that says well it should be self-evident war is a silly thing then is that a philosophical viewpoint or just an individual opinion should the fact that um the quakers are pacifists should the, the fact that that their pacifism is connected with their religion give their beliefs are protected status, which it wouldn't do if um, for people who were pacifists, but non-religious pacifists. Yeah. Tony Meacham, thank you very much. Thank you. This episode was produced by the National Secular Society. All rights reserved. The views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS. You can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time.